Welcome back to Foundations in International Political Economy. Foundations in IPE is a showcase of interviews with foundational figures in the discipline of international or global political economy. The project is led by Dr. Stuart Shields from the University of Manchester and myself, Professor Alex Nunn from the University of Derby. You can find out more by visiting our website www.ipefoundations.org.uk where there are videos of the interviews and more information about the project. We're grateful for the support of the British Academy and the Levy Hume Trust. Video production was by Sam Jordan Films. Dr Sophia Price from Leeds Beckett University helped with the recording of the interviews and music is Awakening by Waterboy, which is available on Pixabay. In this episode, Stuart and I interview Professor Chris Chase Dunn from the University of California, Riverside. Professor Chase Dunn founded the Institute for Research on World Systems at UC Riverside and is also the founding editor of the Journal of World Systems Research. He is active and highly regarded in both the International Studies Association, where he was elected as a Distinguished Scholar of the IP section in 2008, and the American Sociological Association. He has served as a president of the Research Committee on Economy and Society for the International Sociological Association. His work on world systems is very widely known and his focus on the rise and fall of empires and world systems and global state formation is highly pertinent to our contemporary world order. In 1975, that's yeah. before IPE really started as a, or about the time that IPE was really started. The section in the ISA. Right, okay, yeah. So, were people doing IPE before that? Yes, they were, but there was a section formed in the ISA, and I was one of the first chairs of that section. Right, okay. Yeah. And how did you get involved in the section in the first instance? Well, I, okay, I'm a sociologist, so... Right. This is not really my normal network, but yeah. I got involved because I study, I'm a world system guy and I study international systems. And so it made sense for me to get to know some political scientists and to come to the ISA. And I ended up having a lot to say about uh, learning about geopolitics as political scientists do it, international relations, international relations theory. Um, so that was good for me. It was learning a lot and thinking about how sociologists think about global stuff and the world system perspective and putting these things together was generative. And so I published an article in the International Studies Quarterly in 1981 about the question of whether politics and economics are two different logics or a combined logic, which is what international political economy is partly about, that these things really, I mean, the idea is there's a single logic. It's not two logics. And it doesn't make sense to have these disciplines and these fields and stuff that people need to look at the whole thing. That's one of the basic parts of the world system perspective, is that the disciplines are just a mistake. Okay, that there's a real reality there that includes all these things, including culture and politics and economics, and that's the thing to study. And the other big idea is you need to study the whole system, not just its parts, although the parts turn out to be important too. So, And do you, you said you originally, you think of yourself as a sociologist originally. Well, I am one. Right, I just, uh, you yeah. don't believe you're in IP as a, as a discipline. Or no. 
Right. But I, I'm against all disciplines. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, you, and so, I just want to tear down all foundations. So if we're talking about foundations and disciplines, I'm your guy. <laughs> <laughs> so when, but when you say you want to, you don't want to belong to a discipline, but you do identify as sociologist. Well, I, it's not that I identify with them because I'm critical of my own discipline, but I kind of am one because I got a PhD in sociology. And we, it turns out we all have different ancestors and that, that's an interesting thing to get into. I later found out about the ancestors of international relations people and so on. And now I know about that, but I've got my own answers and there's some overlap. There's Marx and Weber, but there's a whole bunch of other people. Political scientists don't usually talk about Durkheim, but Durkheim was a hugely important figure for sociology. And to some extent, I combine some of many of Durkheim's ideas when I'm studying the whole world system. So we had slightly, the disciplines give you different ancestors. And then the question is, what do you do with that? Usually you have to murder your ancestors, but I, I am not that interested in that actually. I, I, I appreciate them, okay? Max Weber was great and kind of nailed it on a whole bunch of things. So, you know, I'm not sure there's all that much more to say about a bunch of stuff that Max Weber said so that we can kind of move on. I mean, so I, I do respect my, my ancestors, I would say. And I respect other people's ancestors too. But the real question is what's going on in the world and how is human society changing and how is the world system changing? So that's what I study. I mean. And as you got in, started getting into thinking about world systems, who were the, I mean, obviously you mentioned Durkheim, Weber, Marx, et cetera. Yeah. Who were the people that were influencing you at the time? Okay, so at the time, I was in graduate school in sociology at Stanford in the 60s. So it was the world revolution of 1968, as we say. There was a lot going on. There was the anti-war movement. There was the civil rights movement in the United States, which is where I was. I was in California. And... I was influenced by dependency theory and by the emerging world system perspective. So while I was there at Stanford, um, you know, I was an activist in the anti-Vietnam War movement. And we discovered imperialism and hegemony and all this stuff. And, you know, our government was killing people in Vietnam using our money to do it. So it was kind of a pisser, you know. So we decided we had to do something about this. And I, what I decided I could do was study how this worked and how inequalities work on a global scale and so on. So I, I did that at Stanford. And I was influenced by my professors who were sociologists, especially John Willard Meyer, who was my main professor. But also Emmanuel Wallerstein was at the Center for Advanced Studies and I went up the hill to see him. And he told me I should learn to speak French. <laughs> and, I, and I and I explained to him that I did I spoke SPSS, so <laughs> it was good enough. <laughs> so I was kind of a quantitative world system guy. That was my original incarnation. And I did cross national comparative research, and I did a dissertation on how being dependent on foreign investment has a negative effect on economic growth. Okay, and this was a big it was part of dependency theory, and so on. So. Uh, it was one of my, the, the first contributions to IPE, and I, that got published in the American Sociological Review, was basically a summary of my dissertation. So that was a meal ticket for life, and I got a jo job at Johns Hopkins University in sociology. And then that's when I got involved with the ISA, because I went to an ISA meeting, and I started hanging out with 
people like Bill Thompson and people like that. So because there's a parallel thing going on within international relations, which is the Modelsky-Thompson view of the world, which is basically pretty similar, a little bit different, but with different words. They never talk about capitalism. They're really only interested in the great powers. So I'm bringing the world system perspective, but learning things from political scientists who are studying things that are where there's a lot of overlap if you can allow for the differences in terminology and stuff like that. And, and so when you started um, getting involved with the IP section, who was around in the IP section? So there was a man named Lad Hollis, who I think ended up being the president of ISA, but I'm not sure. Anyway, he was a big mover, and he was I, I met him, and he basically recruited me. They, needed, they wanted people who weren't political scientists, and I was one, so I was the affirmative action guy from this period, okay? <laughs> and... and the IP section was just in formation, and Lad basically got me to be, to be the president of it for a while. And there was another, my colleague Robert Denmark was involved, and he and I have worked together since then. Okay, so he's he was I head of that section later on or before I can't remember. Anyway, the the section was just getting going, and it was you know it wasn't at all a discipline there. It was kind of a nobody really knew what this was. And I was bringing my own take on it, which is I'm kind of a Marxist and a you know Weberian and stuff like that, and that's and I'm studying the whole system. But there was a lot of overlap, and later the whole thing evolved. And frankly, I don't really pay that much attention to it anymore. I don't care. I'm doing things now were quite different than I was doing back in the 70s and the 80s, where I was studying the modern world system and I was doing cross-national comparative research and stuff, and I did that and. You know, got published and stuff. That was the beginning of my career. But what happened was, in the meantime, as I got more interested in the modern world system in comparative perspective, meaning comparing it with earlier world systems and studying sociocultural evolution from the point of view of world systems. That's what I do now. Okay, I'm presenting a paper tomorrow about that, trying to make a theory of human sociocultural evolution using ideas from IPE, but also from archaeology and anthropology and geography and political science and all these other disciplines. So, and the guy, a guy I'm very influenced is a man named Peter Turchin, who's actually a, an ecologist. Okay, he studies insects and stuff, but he also is modeling states and interstate systems and uh, the dynamics of social change within societies and stuff like that. So I've got a paper here that I'll give you a copy of later yeah. about this. Brilliant. Right. Brilliant. Um, you mentioned particular publications. What what do you think of as your major contribution? So in the seventies, it was this thing about showing that dependence on foreign investment had negative effects on economic growth, okay? And that's been a contentious issue ever since then. And the question is, well, yeah, it was then that I was studying, you know, what happened since 1950 and so on. And so what? how did that change or is it the same and so on? Frankly, it's a big mess, that whole field. But but I, I kind of helped get the ball rolling on that. Um, and it's, it's really a study of uh, how stratification works in a post-colonial world, in a decolonized world, right? There's still power, but it's not colonies anymore, so how does it work? Well, foreign investment is a big way in which it works, and that's what I was, that's what I was studying them. And I'm still interested in that, because I'm interested in global inequalities. 
and what's going on now and the human future and all this all this stuff. Um, that was one of my big contributions. Then I wrote a book that was published by Basil Blackwell, which was basically a structural version of Wallerstein and the world system perspective, which emerged from not just Wallerstein, but Samir Amin and Andre Gwynda Frank and Tara Hopkins and a bunch of and Oliver Cox and a bunch of people in the 60s and the 70s. And so what I did was I sort of tried to theorize it because they were they're they're sort of ambivalent about theory because they, they were historical and what that what that tends to mean is you know a critique of the whole idea of theory so I was trying to turn it into a theory a structural theory and that was my book called Global Formation that was originally published in 1988 but republished since um, in retrospect there's some things that I should have included in that book that I didn't include like I, in the meantime I've discovered world revolutions which are periods in world history in which there's a lot of rebellion in different places, but it has a big impact on the powers that be and how they regulate, because it's the, the ones who handle that best that end up on top. So they're in competition with each other. The world system is com a competitive system, and the ones that can handle the rebellions the best are the ones that end up being on top, okay, in the long run. And so, and this has been going on for hundreds of years. Uh, so I'm studying world revolutions since the Protestant Reformation, basically. And now I'm studying world revolutions in East Asia. So I got working on that because there, there's a similar, there's an East Asian world system that basically exists until the 19th century. So it's a whole other case that you can study. And I'm, I'm, I'm coding, uh, uh, I'm very inf influenced by uh, international relations scholar named David Wilkinson who is helps me bound world systems spatially and temporally based on his understanding of what's, which states are making war on which other ones and alliances and so on and how those small international poly, interpoly networks expand and become the global system that we have. So I basically use Wilkinson's coding of the boundaries of systems. What happens is you have a lot of world systems. The further back you go, the more you have. They're small. And they, and they get bigger because technology of transportation and communications exchanges and expands and interaction networks, important interaction networks expand. So you, you start out with a lot of cases and you end up with one, which is where we are now, a single global system. One of the things when I first met you, I, I, we, we were on a panel together, and I, I thought I don't, I don't really understand why my kind of contemporary focus on inequality is being put with this um, in, in this panel. But then, as as the panel went on and the discussions uh, developed, I started to think actually these are the guys that understand what a system under pressure looks like and feels like, and how that you know how that how that kind of pressure might evolve. So I wondered if you had any comments about where you see our current, and the frailties in our current uh, world system, uh, where you see those frailties and, and what you think might, might come out of that. So, uh, this thing about little ones turning into big ones happened, and to some extent it's still happening, except that there's really only one now, and everybody's connected to it pretty much, some less than others. Um, the question about What's happening in the future? Here, one one takeaway on the study of the evolution thing is the problems that a system creates for itself and that it has because of its environment are 
sort of unique every time. And so the solutions aren't the same. There are patterns that we see, but you, you can't just say, you can't say, well, the solutions that worked back then at that scale are going to work for this thing. So really you need to, it's a, there's a learning process involved in sociocultural evolution, but part of the learning is somebody's got to come up with the answer given what the problems are at the time. And that's kind of the situation that we have now. We have a, to compare it with the past, we, we have a multi-centric system. Um, there's been a process of the emergence of global governance for the, at least a couple hundred years, I would say, since the concert of Europe, but it hasn't gotten that far. We have international organizations and stuff, but they don't really have much power. Uh, we've got a, a new thing going on. There, one of the continuities that we that we share with the uh, the uh, <clears throat> Modelsky-Thompson thing is something called the power cycle. So there's a rise and fall of hegemons, and we study that. I study that in ancient history, but also in the modern world. The U.S. hegemony is, economic hegemony is declining or has declined, but its military hegemony still hasn't declined. So we have a situation where there's a sort of bifurcation in terms of types of power in the world, and one in which corporations are becoming the new hegemon, basically, okay? The transnational capitalist class is what's emerging and being becoming the 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 main controller, but it's not very well organized at the level of global governance. And some people in, in that class understand this. They just had a bunch of sessions at the World Economic Forum about this, okay? This problem about tax dodging and all these, these are huge big issues for global governance, okay? It's basically, there's an out of control system and some of the people in the global 1% understand that, others, just think it's great because they're making a lot of money and stuff. But the other, some of them think like, you know what? This might be trouble down the road. There's way too much global inequality and blah blah blah. So there, there, there's a, it, a lot of interesting things going on. There's also the rise of the of right wing populism and neo fascism and all this stuff, which is, you know, I've written a book, tried to find, figure out, and compare what happened in the 20th century to what's happening now in that regard, and what are the similarities and differences and all that. Basically, fascism and right-wing populism emerged in the 20th century too, and it was a re already a, a reaction to a crisis in global capitalism. So this already happened once, but the question is sort of what's similar now in the way it's emerging now with and what's different from that. And there's some important similarities, but there's some important differences. At least so far, it hasn't turned into military aggression, okay? Or not as far as I know. <laughs> we haven't read the papers. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> no, and it could. I mean, but 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 it's, if it hasn't and if it doesn't, then it's interesting to think about why, right? What got institutionalized in the meantime that sort of presents prevents that? And of course, that's the UN and all that stuff, right? That's its job is to not, is global security and so on. Maybe just even though it doesn't have much power, the culture reflects, constrains political actors from proposing projects where they're going to conquer X. I don't know. I'm not sure. And that all that could, it's not very well institutionalized, so it could fall apart. And we could be looking at it. We're emerge, what, what's emerging is a multipolar world in the classic sense with 
the proviso that the real powers are firms now, not, not states. But that multipolar world is like a pre-World War I situation, right? It's a dangerous situation, and it could go really badly because of the technologies that we have for killing each other. So this is going to be the challenge of the 21st century, okay? And, you know, I, I'm, I have a lot of fear about that. Um, I, the way things have been going, I don't see very many people who understand the problem. And, and I, I understand, to some extent, I get it, because they're very stable. From a classic IR position, it's a very stable situation right now. The U.S. has all the guns, and everybody else can just keep their mouths shut, or if it, we just fly the bombers over the top of them if they start to ch chatter too much. And so on. The problem with that is it's a very expensive proposition, and basically it's funded now by printing U.S. dollars, so how long is that going to last? That it doesn't look very stable to me, okay? Everybody's doing the printing money thing, and that's fine with me. I mean, I, printing money could be a great thing for the people of the earth, okay? But recently, right now it's mainly being done to shore up the existing power structures, and it looks to me like a not very stable system, like the whole thing could come crashing down the next time there's another economic uh, collapse. And then that raises the issue of, well, then you got a militarily multipolar world. And that's a scary proposition from a classic IR point of view. And it scares me too, because there it's about, are people semi-sane and do, are, what institutions can be used to try to keep the peace and resolve conflicts without warfare and so on. And you know, maybe I hope we get through this in the 21st century, but I'm not sure how it's gonna work out exactly. There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of unhappy people, and I get it. And when you have that kind of situation, we have massive inequalities and people that feel like they're, in the, they're not being represented, and the, the institutions themselves sort of undermining their own legitimation claims, then this is not so good. This is kind of a scary situation. I mean, I'm worried more about my daughters and the young people than I am about myself, because I'm not going to be around that much longer, frankly. Think about that next generation then. Yeah. Um, if you were to give some advice to um, that the next generation of people thinking about IP, so I, I take the point about right. disciplinary boundaries, but maybe they were thinking, you know, what, what, what should I take from world systems theory? What would you, what would you advise them? So, I'm not sure, I think there's at least two answers there, but one is for people who are thinking about being social scientists, that uh, social science and global citizenship are not the same thing. Max Weber said that and he was right, okay? But you can do both. It's harder when you try to combine them because it's kind of a mess, but they do get connected and they are connected to some extent. But it's important to understand that they're sort of different games. Social science is science. You're trying to find out how things work. And you're trying to find out what causes what. And issues about what's good and what you like and all that stuff are kind of irrelevant. It's not what's good and what you like and what do the world you want to see and all this shit. It's about what happened and what caused it to happen. So you need to pay attention to that. Okay, it's just the philosophy of science, all right? It's not complicated. 
in social stuff, when humans are doing it to each other, we need there's a bunch of things that you have to be careful about, like projecting your own subjectivity onto the subject and all that. But we have a bunch of methods for dealing with that. The other thing is you can get a job doing this. It's a skill. It's a craft. Okay, and we know how to teach young people how to do it, and then once they do it, it's a they can get a job doing it. Okay. It may not be a university job, but there's a lot of people who need to need researchers who know how to do this. And we it's something that we can teach our students and they need a way to get a job, and this is a way. Okay. The world citizen part is sort of related to this because you can use ideas about what you're concerned about to decide what it is you want to study. Uh, and there's a lot going on there. I already addressed some of the some of the issues. As far as what the world system perspective has to offer, I would say um, it's important to look at the whole system. Hardly anybody actually does that, okay? I mean, people say they do and they talk about globalization and stuff, but they don't actually look at the whole system. And that's really important for somebody to do, both for science and for politics, okay? I'm trying to organize, or <laughs> my, my colleague Barry Gills and I are, organize, are, are doing a, a forum that's going to be published by Rutledge and Taylor and Francis addressing Samir Amin's proposal for a fifth international. Okay, Samir Amin died last year, and for the last 10 years he's been talking about a fifth international. And so what we are trying to do is get a whole bunch of people to think about the idea of a global party of the left. So a party of the left at the global level. That, and then how does it relate to local stuff and all this? We want people to think this idea again, okay? It's not just copying what the earlier internationalists. It's like under these conditions, what makes sense now? And understanding the culture of the left, because there's no point in having the perfect formula if nobody thinks it's a good idea. So you need to understand where people are coming from in progressive movements and what is their, what kind of culture they have imbibed and so on, and then design things and figure out how to do things at that level. We've, we've collected a whole bunch of essays that are going to be published on this topic, and they're really good, okay? We have, of course, people who say it's a bad idea, but some of them bother to say why they think it's a bad idea, so that's, that's useful. Um, and we have a bunch of people who have different good ideas about how this should be done and what it should be attention to, and they're coming from different places. Some of them critique Samir Amin for you know him being responsible for Paul Pot and stuff like that, and and then, <laughs> but most of them are just praising him. Okay, uh, anyway, that's one project. The other thing I would tell young people in the world citizen thing is, you know. You're, as an intellectual, as a member of the global intelligentsia, you have a somewhat responsibility to try to get people to, to figure out what's really going on and then to communicate it to larger audiences and to be involved in social movements and to do things yourself to try to change things or at least protest the things that are going really wrong, okay? I'm going to get arrested in Las Vegas next week. I'm going to Las Vegas. You're all invited, okay? You been there? It's a lovely place. You know, I'm sort of. It's actually pretty weird. But there's an Air Force base 40 miles north called Creech. Creech Air Force Base. You know what they do there? 
Yeah, they run the drones. Right. They kill people, yeah. okay? They run the predator, the, they zap people with predator missiles out of that military base. So Code Pink and I are gonna shut it down at least for a short period until they realize that what that's what we're doing. And then they're gonna come and grab us, probably, okay? Yeah. Because it's a matter of national security that they sh should be allowed to murder people. Well, no, no, they're not gonna be allowed to murder people, not with my money, which is what they're using. This pisses me off, okay? It's, it reminds me of the Vietnam War. It's clear and present danger. This is not some abstraction. They're actually murdering people there every day. And we can slow them up for 15 minutes. This is exactly what we should do. And we should make people aware that this is going on right outside there in Nevada, okay? So I'm gonna do that. I don't know how long I'll be in the slammer, hopefully not too long, because I don't really like being in jail. I've never been in jail for a long time. I think that's probably way worse than what's happened to me, but I haven't really been in jail since the 1960s, so I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> you can do a compare and contrast. <laughs> that's right, exactly. And I'm not sure what they got in the way of jail in, in Las Vegas. Well, that works. Well, I guess I'll find out. Do you think there's something about, um, just as you were speaking, about the kind of connections between social science and activism and so on? Yeah. Um, is there something about world systems that, because you start from the premise of a global bourgeoisie and a global proletariat, yeah. and, but finds expression through national, national states, is there something that world systems theory does that is particularly useful at this present time where you see national proletariats being pulled apart by, by populist forces and so on? Well, I think class analysis helps us a lot with what's going on now. But basically what you've got is a whole bunch of working class people who feel that the way things have been going is not good for them, and they're right. It's a reaction against neoliberal the globalization project, and they've been left out. Basically, the computer programmers are fine, but not everybody can be a computer programmer, apparently. So, you know, we need national industrial policies and global industrial policies that employ people who can't be computer programmers. And you know what? This is not rocket science. It's just that under current conditions, it's hard to have even a conversation about that because Wall Street is running the place and they don't really care about this. They're not worried about it. It's not their problem, apparently, or they think, although it could easily become their problem. So, you know, it's a problem if for left politics in the United States. There have been some big mistakes. There's still more mistakes. But the good news is, because of the Trump presidency, there's a lot going on that's interesting. It's People are talking about socialism. President Trump's talking about socialism. So, you know, they're not talking about what that means. <laughs> the, 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 the people, the young people who are in politics are saying, well, we're not socialists, we're democratic socialists. So, but they don't even talk about that. And there's no discussion at all of the U.S. role in the world from those people. Well, you can't have a political program without addressing that. And I know it's difficult, but it has to be addressed. We need a vision of the United States in playing a progressive, or at least not a regressive role in the larger world. We badly need this. And it's, it's not that hard to imagine, but it needs to be addressed by people who are in politics. And they need to explain it to young people, and they need to explain it to the people who are their constituents. 
that's kind of missing. They, they per, the left-wing politicians don't talk about it. That's their solution so far. Well, I get it from the point of view of they need to have an electoral strategy and stuff, and it's a difficult situation, but that's not good enough. It's not just about winning elections. It's about actually leading the people of the United States and the people of the world toward a more a world that could actually work and that would not just fall apart and be a goddamn mess. So they got to do this, okay? And nobody listens to me, but I, I mean, I tell them, but uh, it doesn't seem to be happening yet. But, but I am encouraged by some of the things that are going on, some of these new people. My guess is Trump will get reelected, okay, in 2020 because he's doing pretty well lately and unless something really big new comes out between, and it's not much time. So we're going to have another four years of Donald Trump, which is going to be hard to take, but probably a good thing, because it'll give the left in the United States long time to actually come up with a progressive vision of the United States in the future, which isn't just a matter of all the issues about inclusion and so on that we have within the United States. We have a whole sector of the working class who feel, who vote for Donald Trump and have been ignored by the politicians. They have. So they need to not be ignored. We need to have a program that addresses them, that tells them what, paints a picture that includes them, basically. Okay? These people can be an important part of a human future, we need to have a vision of that, and somebody needs to do it. I'm not a, in electoral politics. I'm just saying, if I had to give advice to people who are, that's what I would tell them. Uh, <coughs> just a couple more questions then. So if somebody started reading your Global Formations book, they would pretty quickly come up against quite a different uh, understanding of capitalism, a different reading of Marx yeah. than um, you would get elsewhere. Right. Could you give a, a kind of a brief introduction to that to help sure. readers along so they, they kind of understand what they, they would encounter? So the big idea is that Marx's definition of capitalism was a bit too narrow because really he was talking about, he defined capitalism as commodity production with wage labor. But the reality of capitalism for hundreds of years had been a combination of that with what was going on in the so-called periphery which was slavery and serfdom. It wasn't wage labor, but it was capitalist slavery and serfdom. That's the big idea. There's peripheral capitalism. And it's, an imp it's not just something that happens out there in the backward countries. It's an important part of the system in the sense that competition within the core, who's the winners and the losers, depends on the ability to do that and to get it right and get cheap raw materials and agricultural products from the periphery. So the periphery is not just out there. It's not an accent. It's important for the evolution of the system. That's the big idea, okay? That's the critique of Marx right there. Boom. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, thank you. It, 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 wasn't, it, it was a good idea, but it, it should have been about the whole system, not just about the core. Mm -hmm. And that production relations in capitalism include that stuff that happens in the periphery. It's coerced labor. And even when you get wage labor in the core, which you get the abolition of serfdom and slavery, but you still have coerced labor because states in the core repress the labor movement. You, you, in Guatemala, if you say, I'm a labor organizer, you're dead. Yeah.
So what the, what is that? Well, that's like coerced labor. You can't be a labor organizer in Guatemala, not for very long. So you, you still have coercion of the labor movement going on in the non-core, and that's, so there's still a corporate free hierarchy in that sense. And then a couple of uh, sort of more sort of personal ones, I suppose. You, 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 you said you, you were at Stanford and then you went to John Hopkins. Yeah. Uh, and then you went moved west. Right. To, to California. Was that, was that sunshine that motivated that? Was it a work-related thing? Was it, you know, lifestyle? What, what was... Okay, well, I grew up in California, so I'm a Californian, but I grew up in Northern California. And the idea in Northern California is that Southern California is the armpit of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> so then I moved to Southern California, and it's taken me about 20 years to figure out that it's not the armpit of the universe. It's actually a very interesting place. Okay, so I'm overcoming my prejudices, basically, by living in Southern California. But, you we know, have the same with Yorkshire and Lancaster. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, know, I know. Everybody does this. I like California a lot. Okay, it's the sanctuary state. You got it? Yeah, California is good. We have an EPA that we're not defunding. You know, we're, we're, we, our responsibility is to be a beacon of sanity in the United States. And with Massachusetts, we're doing that. Okay, so we're not going to secede from the union because we feel responsible. So, you know, California politics are pretty interesting and it's fun to live there and I like it a lot. I, l I left Johns Hopkins because there were some things that I wanted to do in my academic life that I basically found out I couldn't do at Johns Hopkins. When I went to uh, Southern Cal to the University of California, Riverside, I started something called the Institute for Research on World Systems, which is a, which is a, a kind of a, a research operation interdisciplinary research operation within the university and i basically couldn't do that at johns hopkins i found out they part of the part of the uh hiring deal was that they supported that for a long time and they were i'm very uh, grateful to the university for doing that and we've done a lot of great things and that's still the focus of my of my research and I've wor worked there with a lot of students and a lot of other faculty and we're that's a continuing thing I'm planning on retiring in 2020 but I'm not going to quit that part of things okay I'm going to go away for a, I'm taking a little break I'm going to go sailing in the Pacific and then I'm coming back and I'm going to live in Riverside and continue to do the IROS thing but. and you do have some if my understanding of world systems debates is, is correct, you do have some methodological differences with, with some of the, the, the people at um, Froud Health. I, know, I mean, not an, antagonistic ones, but just lots so of So I mentioned the quantitative, qualitative thing, okay? I'm not anti... But they, they say they're not either, but really it's world history, okay? They tell the story and so on. And I like that. It's good, and people it's easier for people to read and stuff. But I tend to think more quantitatively than most of them, okay? And that continues to be true. I'm doing quantitative studies of comparing world systems now, okay? Using measures that actually are quantitative scales and stuff about the sizes of uh, settlements and the sizes of polities and all that kind of stuff. So um, that's one difference. The other differences have to do with how you bound world systems. Basically, Wallerstein used mode of production to bound the modern world system, and I think that was a big mistake. That really what world systems are, are interaction networks, and it doesn't matter what the logic of interaction is within the parts. What matters is, are they strongly connected with one another so that they actually need one another? 
So the Ottoman Empire was part of the modern world system. It wasn't another system. So, so there's a there's a Western there's a what we call central system that is basically political military interaction and economic interaction. And Europe, Cap Wallerstein was right about capitalism becoming predominant in Europe where it hadn't anywhere else. But the only part I quibble with is how he bounded the system. Okay, I think that that was a mistake. I basically agree with most of what Wallace's stuff is, okay? I think he's great. He's a great uh, leader and uh, uh, an incredibly brilliant man. But we have a, that, that was also in global formation, that, that, uh, that switch. Okay, uh, and then just two last questions. One, who, who would you be reading now? Are there younger, newer scholars that you're reading now that you think these are, these are exciting? Um, Thank you, scholars, to have around. So I'm I'm very influenced by a man named Peter Turchin, who's actually a uh, he's an ecologist. He 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 grew up in his academic life studying insects and elk and stuff. Okay, but then he got interested in states and state formation, and he's a modeler, and he has a really interesting way of uh, being able to systemically think about. Uh, human sociocultural evolution, and he has a big research project, with a big interdisciplinary research project where they're putting together a big data set about 30 different world areas called CSHAT, and it's really good, and I'm very influenced by him. He has a book about the United States called Ages of Discord, which I would recommend to you. It's, it's kind of hard to read for people who aren't modelers, okay, because it's about modeling this, the, the, the politics and economics of uh, uh, change within the United States for the last couple hundred years. But it's, I, I'm very influenced by that. It, it's not a world system model. It's a national nation state model. Okay? And he, his secular cycle model is a model of internal dynamics. But what I'm thinking is we need that and we need the world system stuff together. That's what the paper is I'm giving tomorrow, is trying to have a multi-level model model where you have a, you take seriously the idea that within polys is a evolutionary process that is somewhat self-contained but that it occurs in a larger context which also has its own dynamics and then how do you put these things together uh, I'm still working on that but <laughs> and then oh well you know um, I've been reading James C Scott about early states okay Scott is an interesting has an interesting brain and he the, the, the cool thing about that book, this is his most recent book, I think, um, where he's pre presenting a take on what happened in the emergence of state, original state formation in Mesopotamia and being up on the latest archaeological stuff and everything. But he, 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 I, I like his, his perspective, which is basically that he's an anarchist, so people don't like states. Scott doesn't like them, that's obvious. But so they try to get away or they leave or they rebel or they encourage or all this stuff happens. And this is especially true of early states. They were very flimsy and they didn't last very long. They did emerge and stuff. So and the, so this is so part of state formation is, is being able to deal with that. And no state lasts very long from a historical point of view, okay? There's, there's a rise and fall process. And he's very, he's very paying attention to that. And so it's an excellent book. It's a good read, too. It's fun. He's a good writer. Brilliant. James C. Scott. And Brilliant, it's, thank you. it's called Against the Grain.
one of the things I always do um, at the end of any kind of interview is give the interviewee a, a chance to say, well, you know, you've asked me your questions. Yeah, yeah. If you, if, if you have had a, a question that you think we ought to have asked you, is, is there one that we haven't, you know? So the one I was going to ask you is, when were you born? But I already found out, didn't I? <laughs> it was the same year I first came to the ISA. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, so one of the questions that was on your list was sort of what's happening in IPE now? And I, I confessed already, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But so what do you think? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think... One of the concerns that I have about IP as a discipline is they're, they're twofold. One um, is something that Craig Murphy picked up when we, we discussed with him, was about answering or, or asking small questions as opposed to bigger questions, and I, I've certainly been guilty of that. Um, and the other concern I have about uh, IP, maybe one that you share, is I, I feel like there's a lot of theory building for the purpose of theory building, and sometimes for professional reasons, because it helps you get published in particular journals and so on, um, but is insufficiently supported with empirical evidence, basically. You know, it's theory on theory with, without uh, sufficient interaction with, with, with empirical data. That would be my answer. Stuart, I don't know if you have a... Well, I suppose I would share those concerns. Um, uh, and I think beyond that, I think that you know, maybe not you know, not so much in the US, but certainly in the UK, this kind of relentless managerialism in British universities, which I think encourages mm -hmm. this um, you know salami slicing of research, so you can kind of publish on a regular basis without necessarily developing a much longer term um, mode of engagement. And I thought you know. I think the work that, particularly, I think the scholars who are trying to think critically about you know, global capitalism, you need to have that longer-term engagement. Could, could you write a global formations book today? In a, certainly in a UK university, you could, but it would be difficult, you know, because because the pressure to publish every year. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, so that that piece of scholarship must have taken yeah. a good amount of time to to lay out. Um, so whether you could do that or not, I think, I think the structures are against it. I think. Yeah. yeah. I so think the university is a, is a locus of political struggle as well as a place yeah. to do academic work. And it, this is pretty obvious these days, right? And I'm involved in a bunch of stuff where I am. There's lots going on there. We're going to get 15,000 new undergraduates in the next 10 years and stuff like that. So, but this is an opportunity for me to get the attention of the other faculty. And not only about that, but about what's going on with the purposes of the university and stuff. I was talking to James Middleman this morning about this. He's got a new book about this. So, you know, there's there's been basically a sort of corporate takeover of universities, some more, some less. Where I am, the faculty actually have power. But at, when their own interests are, are threatened, they perk up, but they don't necessarily know what else is going on. So I think I have an opportunity to get their attention now because of this clear and present threat. So I'm going to try and figure out how to put all this together where I am. But everybody needs to figure out what to say about this, what to do about it. It's happening everywhere. It's part of the corporate takeover of the world.
thanks for listening to Foundations in International Political Economy. We hope you'll check in with us again soon. You can subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts or on Spotify. Or just go to the website www.ipefoundations.org.uk to find out more.